Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hi, everyone. This is Mike DeBliss. This is part two of the presentation on opening statement as story. Uh, this is going to be a pretty ambitious uh, presentation as I'm going to tie up some loose ends and then go into um, some new topics that um, in and of themselves could take um, a long time to cover. Um, and I don't want to, I don't want to, um, you know, do uh, any of these topics and injustice and cover them in short shrift. Um, I want to give them the amount of time that they deserve. Uh, so, you know, th this presentation, believe it or not, started out um, with, uh, you know, with uh, uh, far fewer topics several years ago and was born out of my um, background as an actor and in theater, uh, married with my experience as a trial lawyer and um, what I had experienced in nearly um, seven, eight years uh, working as a staff lawyer in the public defender's office. Um, so it's a topic that I'm deeply passionate about and um, which continues to evolve over the course of time. And I've recently, um, you know, uh, redid this presentation and realized that over the last couple of years, uh, there have been um, a number of changes in how I view certain things. And um, my experiences, I uh, have become a little bit um, uh, broader and, um, you know, in more than one way, not just with courtroom experience, but also with theater, since um, I got into doing a lot of classical acting over the last few years, uh, even before the pandemic. And, um, you know, I wanted to share as much as I possibly can with you, um, because I feel like I have some insight into um, you know the the dynamics that go on in a courtroom um, on a on maybe a different level than the average person based on my theater background and of course based on the experience that I've gained in trying um, more cases over the last couple of years. So what I intend to do right now <clears throat> is to. Uh, summarize the uh, first part of opening statement is st story and then move on to power of silence and uh, from power of silence I want to talk about the five senses and then we're going to delve into um, the last few topics which will take us to the end of the presentation um, I as I mentioned before always welcome questions that you might have and encourage you at any time to uh, shoot me an email. So without further ado, we are going to pick up on a quick summary <clears throat> of um, the first part of this presentation. Uh, so let's, uh, let's start with point one. By adjusting the pitch and vocal inflection of certain syllables in important words, by shortening your sentences, by slowing down the pace, by pausing to allow for important points to sink in, you can do with the spoken word what you do with the written word. Second, uh, you never want to overlook the mannerisms and phrases that you use to convince people in everyday life. These will bring you closer to the goal of being real and natural in front of the jury. 
um, I'm reminded of a very beautiful quote um, by a woman um, by the name of Sally Hogshead. And she said, to become more successful, you don't have to change who you are, you have to become more of who you are. So it's almost like embracing um, more of your humanity, including those things that uh, we sometimes are a little ashamed of. Um, maybe the quirks, maybe the idiosyncrasies, the things that, um, you know, that we hide and that we don't let other people see, they are rich. They are what makes us us and that separates us from everybody else. And so I think that we should embrace those qualities instead of hide them. Um, I have a short story from my personal life to underscore this. Um, I was asked to give a cold read um, at one time when I was auditioning and the script contained the line, Oh, I forgot. Um, when I first did the cold read, I gave a straightforward but uninteresting reading of these words. And I was challenged by the director to, um, to do it again. And before I did it a second time, I had a little break. Um, and during the break, I thought about it and I realized that that was not how I would personally react to forgetting something, especially if it was important to me. I then put my trust into my body since it never lies. Instantly, my fists went to my temples in a moment of painful recollection. A long pause followed during which I realized that it was too late now and that I must make the best of it. Finally, almost with a shrug of my shoulders, I casually said, I forgot. While we are on the topic of the pause, um, I'd like to segue now into the power of silence. Why silence? And I should probably preface this by saying that um, I think that silence is golden. I remember um, in, the, in the movie theaters, uh, the AMC theaters, there would always be like a promotion um, before the movie would start to encourage people to be quiet and courteous of other moviegoers so as not to disrupt the experience. And um, a big uh, slide would uh, would uh, be shown across the screen and it would say, uh, silence is golden. So there is no such thing as nothing, um, in my mind at least. There's always something, even if it's as subtle as the sound of breath going in and out. Silence has a myriad of meanings. In theaters, it's an absence of words, but never an absence of meaning. A word can be emphasized in a thought underlined by silence. It has a certain energy to it like no other energy source. It has the power to get people to think and to act. It can help slow the mind down. There's also a certain intimacy that surrounds silence. Um, it, it exists between two people who have a very deep and meaningful relationship. Um, it's almost as if uh, through the silence, there is more being spoken um, than would otherwise be spoken if words were actually being uttered. Um, and that might explain why no words need to be said. You know, two people who know each other very well 
and um, have a very meaningful relationship with one another. They've spoken hundreds, if not thousands of times before. They know each other inside and out. And just by a look of the other person, you can you can know what they're thinking and what they what they're about to say. And sometimes that look is is enough in and of itself to um, relay what the other person is thinking or wanting. Um, there was an acting teacher by the name of Sandy Meisner um, in the uh, in the uh, early in the in the mid uh, 1900s um, who had some famous quotes um, about acting and he also talked about silence he said that silence has a myriad of meanings in the theater it's the absence of words but never an absence of meaning um, he says that um, a moment of silence is something too let me prove it to you and um, he asked one of his students to ask him if he uh, whether he thought he had talent um, and the Sandy Meisner, um, and so the student said to Sandy Meisner, Mr. Meisner, do you think I have talent? Sandy's head cocked away from the student and he maintained complete silence. The class began to laugh. And then Meisner said, that was silence, wasn't it? My silence was very expressive. The trouble, of course, with silence is that it can make people feel uncomfortable and alone. That's why the word is filled with why the world rather is filled with TVs that have been left on when nobody's watching for background noise. Um, ironically, friends and family ask me what the hardest thing to do on stage is. Most are expecting me to say cry or to go into the depths of despair. So when they hear me say shut my trap and be quiet, their jaws drop. Because of how uncomfortable silence can be, many people feel the need to fill the void with needless chatter. The rapid, close, unbroken delivery of words causes ideas to become blurred and to recede into common noise. And, you know, this is unfortunate, the, unfortunately the painful reality of a trial. Um, you have there's constant talking from beginning to end. And so I oftentimes wonder, what if we were to break this chain um, down and what if we were to embrace silence when we had the opportunity to do so, such as when we were in opening statement or in closing argument? I wonder how much more a thought or a word could be underscored through silence than by um, overemphasizing it with words when that's what the jury has been immersed in. You know, so I actually think if we think of the opposite and we're counterintuitive here, we might find that silence might help highlight our thought or our point more so than uh, underscoring it with words and more blah, 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 since that's what the jury is, has been, you know, inundated with since the time they set foot into the courtroom. Third, uh, voice work, as I've talked about in part one, is an often overlooked but invaluable tool for the trial lawyer. Simply put, it will help you to free your breath, develop resonance, loosen jaw and tongue tension, and wake up your full vocal range. 
When this happens, your voice will drop into your body. A tip here is that relaxation and release is essential to opening, freeing, and ultimately strengthening your voice. Now, for lawyers, especially trial lawyers, the tension that creeps up into our body um, in the course of a trial sometimes causes our shoulders to be up as high as our ears. And so we have to constantly remind ourselves, you know, to um, release. And uh, there are exercises that voice instructors have taught me over the years that help me to pay more attention to my jaw and tongue tension as well as the tension that I hold in my shoulders and other parts of my body. And there are simple exercises that I do before I even get into my car and drive to the courthouse in the morning that help me to release the tension and help my voice to be free and um, you know ready to go from the moment I, uh, I'm in court. Speech devices that are enormously useful and which have withstood the test of time consist of quotations, analogies, similes and metaphors, illustrative stories, painting word pictures, repetition, triplets like battered, beaten, and abused. Parallel structure like ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Enumeration, like there are five facts showing negligence, and here they are, number one, etc. Now we move on to uh, five senses. Um, don't forget to actively engage the five senses. Why is that important? Well, playwrights emphasize that if your story can enter the listener through the senses, the listener can experience the story in real time and as if and as if it were happening to them. And so uh, what the point is here is that that will help the listener to empathize, such as a jury, to empathize more with what you're with what you're saying, with your story. So what are our five senses? They are sound, smell, touch, taste, and sight. As fundamental and as rudimentary as these senses are, believe it or not, we spend as long as a year in um, drama school um, re-exploring our senses because a lot of them have become dormant. And um, it's mostly uh, because of the age that we're living in right now. If you think about it, when we go back to prehistoric times and when we were cavemen, um, our senses were, our five senses were so much more heightened then than they were now because we had to go out, we had to hunt for our food. And so you can imagine that certain senses such as sound and such as smell uh, were a lot more alive in our ancestors than they are today. Uh, why? Because when we're hungry today, we merely go to the supermarket or we go out to get something to eat. Our ancestors had to hunt for their food and they had to be successful in the hunt in order to eat. If they were unsuccessful, then it was very simple. They didn't eat and they could starve. And, you know, their obligation, you know, was to make sure that, you know, uh, above all things that they had nourishment and you know, that they had food for not only themselves, but for their family. So they had to be very um, 
uh, very, uh, uh, um, very adept at hunting. And so their senses of sound, their senses of smell and um, sight were, you know, heightened in order to um, capitalize and to make uh, the hunt be successful. And so what we need to do today is maybe spend a little bit more time on our senses. And believe it or not, there are things we can do today, even though we're not actively hunting and we're not as primal as we once were, to bring out these senses and to sharpen them um, a little bit more. Now let's talk about sound. How about remembering sounds um, that we might have heard when we were younger or re-exploring sounds that, uh, through nature? Remembering sounds can help to access the emotions that they trigger inside you. And that's why it's such a powerful storytelling tool. So for example, does the ringing of a classroom bell bring back feelings of being out of place and alienated um, like you might have felt in middle school? Does the sound of an ambulance siren scare you, causing you to remember the day that your grandmother died? How about the sound of a brook running? Does that make you feel peaceful and tranquil? Smell. A smell can help open up the personal emotions you need to feel. The stench of garbage, for example, might make you feel nauseous. The fragrance of lilacs, lilacs or roses could make you feel the first stirrings of romance. Touch. Does sand trickling through your fingers transport you to a beach? Does the touch of fur make you feel romantic? Does a cool breeze blowing through your hair remind you of the day when your husband proposed to you? Taste. Does the taste of a bitter pill, rancid milk, or liver make you want to throw up? Perhaps the taste of vanilla icing makes you feel loved and special as you did when your mother would make a birthday cake just for you with her special vanilla icing. Or maybe the sensation of a dark piece of chocolate melting in your mouth creates primal, sensual feelings. Sight. For me, um, I just love sunsets. And I think about sunsets in tropical regions um, such as a uh, a Florida sunset. Um, an abandoned house um, even has uh, a visual impact for me. Um, a dead carcass of an animal on the highway immediately um, makes me feel sad and, um, um, and, and really longing and upset for the animal. An intimate candlelit room or a flag-draped coffin also has a significant impact over me. So what you want to ask yourself is what visuals create a response in you? Exploring different images, um, explore different images to see which ones move you. Chances are they will also move the jury. Okay, now we're going to move on and continue with part two of this presentation. 
Um, so the topic that I want to talk about here is, well, I'm going to talk about the following topics. Empathy for your client, breaking down the fourth wall, the director's eye, the extemporaneous method. It's a long word, but it's not really uh, very complicated. We'll break it down. I want to talk about preparation for the lawyer um, because I think that that sometimes gets overlooked. Um, I, for one, was never really the one to like to be lectured to on preparation, but I've learned over the years that there's no getting around it. I've been in situations where I uh, haven't been as prepared as I'd like to, not because of any poor work ethic, but because of other demands from work that have pulled me away from the preparation that I should have done. And I've compared that with experiences when I've been fully prepared and I've realized a stark difference. So I want to definitely pay uh, attention to that. And then I want to end with empowering the jury. So let's start with an empathy for your client. I realize that this is that this sounds schmaltzy. Um, however, there's no way around it. Caring is at the core of every case. And the first thing that I ask myself is, you know, do I really care? Um, the reason why is because when we acknowledge that we care, the stakes become very high. It's a lot easy to detach and to say, you know, this is just another client that I have and, you know, I'm going to have a hundred more this year. And so you assign a number to the client. Another way of detaching is to say, well, you know, if this client goes to jail, you know, he or she is the one who has to serve the sentence, not me. And I realize the importance of having to detach, but I also can't overlook the humanity in this profession, no matter how heinous the crime might be. Um, I always feel an overwhelming uh, responsibility and duty to my clients to represent them as zealously as I possibly can. And I do take these cases very personal, um, you know, and so nothing less than my utmost best uh, will allow me to sleep at night. So I search for the humanity in the client, um, and I feel that that's essential before I can have the humility to ask the jurors to see it, you know, because it would become, it, it, it's, it's, like it, it's 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 like you know saying jury i want you to find the humanity in my client even though i can't all right it's a complete oxymoron and um you know it's uh you know it's hypocritical in so many ways so this is the first step in changing the client from a defendant to a person and I've learned a lot about this, you know, um, through acting. Um, the acting profession, by its very nature, is a humanizing profession. Um, it's my job to step into someone else's shoes, to wander around in someone else's ideas, to think differently. It is that much harder not to have empathy for other people and the circumstances, even when they are very different from my own. Now, as I mentioned before, 
you know, there is the stakes become a lot higher when you start to care. And so I'd label caring as not for the faint of heart. If you really care, you open yourself up to a lot of risks. None more heart-wrenching than watching the person you care about being dragged out of the courtroom in chains and shackles if the jury finds him guilty. In essence, the slogan, the buck stops here, um, it applies uh, with you accepting full responsibility for the fate of your client. This can be accomplished without so much as uttering a word. Um, I've learned through um, experience in the courtroom that we can demonstrate um, how deeply we care about our client by how we interact with him in the courtroom, by where we stand in relation to him, by touching him, putting a hand on his or her shoulder, or by making eye contact with him at various points during the trial. So here are some tips that I embrace when it comes to um, empathy. Um, I never refer to my client as my client. Um, I, I will refer to him or her by their first name or by Mr. or Miss. Um, nor do I refer to Johnny as the defendant. Um, that is very dangerous. No, not only are these labels unendearing, but they're cold and dehumanizing. From the moment your client entered this world, he was given a name, just like you were, the one that's written on his birth certificate. And I believe that we should use that name. Um, it's easier for the jury, and I realize it's subtle, and I realize that, you know, you can say you're making more to do, much to do about nothing, but it really is easier for the jury to convict a client or a defendant than it is to convict Johnny. The jury will hear Johnny referred to as a defendant continuously throughout the trial by the judge and the prosecutor. As a colleague once said, if the jury has a question during deliberations, such as a request for a readback of testimony, you can gauge how well you've humanized Johnny by how they refer to him in their note to the judge. Uh, so for example, uh, the note might say, we'd like a readback of the defendant's testimony from direct versus we'd like a readback of John, uh, John's testimony from direct. Tip number two, show your hands. Um, studies show that when a person is sitting down with his hands lying in his lap underneath the table, people think that he has something to hide. I know it's, it's crazy, but you know, these uh, psychologists and social scientists have done studies. And so um, as a result, uh, you know, that person is not trusted. Um, so it doesn't, it, it takes a little bit of conscious attention uh, and a reminder, but you know, you can certainly get comfortable with putting your hands uh, on the table and showing them um, during the course of a trial. Tip number three is the huddle. And that's basically, you know, putting a hand on the client's um, shoulder and making eye contact with him or her. It doesn't have to be any more than that. Um, you know, I see a lot of attorneys who will whisper to their clients, um, you know, and I think that that shows a sense of endearment. Um, that translates into a message to the jury that, you know, you feel very comfortable around Johnny and that they can feel just as as comfortable 
um, uh, around him too, or just as comfortable in, um, you know, in him being a good guy, so to speak. So I say, don't be afraid to get close. Um, the jury, as I said, is always watching and they're acutely aware of what's going on in the courtroom, especially how you're interacting with your client or with Johnny. Tip number four, find the emotional essence of the case by making it personal to you. Learn to work from private places and from circumstances that, yes, are emotionally loaded. Um, you know, we're not going to court to um, argue over you know, a, over, uh, you know, uh, 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 an ordinance violation or, you know, whether, you know, a, um, uh, whether a dog was, um, you know, improperly went to the bathroom on a neighbor's yard. The stakes here are enormously large. We're dealing with uh, the very liberty of your client. So I begin by asking myself the question, what is genuinely stimulating? What is a genuinely stimulating circumstances that has deep meaning to me? Uh, this is normally how I prepare for a scene. Um, and it's usually the result of something that has just happened. This gives us a springboard for a full preparation. You know, the idea, of course, is to tap into something that's both personal and private. The more specific you can get, of course, the better. And so, you know, an interesting parallel is that um, if I were to be in a scene where I was just told that I had been selected by a committee to be the head of the National Security Council, um, and this for the character is what he has aspired to become his entire life and that it's his dream come true, I, for one, would not be able to really appreciate the significance of that based on um, the narrative that I've been selected to be the head of the National Security Council. Why? Because I've never had any ambition to be the head of a National Security Council. So for me, as the actor, being named head of the National Security Council doesn't mean a hill of anything. In other words, I cannot connect to it literally. However, I can relate to the emotions that I would feel if my own dream came true. Um, those emotions would be joy, happiness, and elation. For me, it might be like proposing to the love of my life in front of the world's most recognized symbol of love, the Eiffel Tower, with a positive result. I've now captured the emotional essence of the scene by tapping into something that is deeply personal to me and that would make me feel like king of the world, the dominant emotion felt by the character after hearing this exciting news. So I've been brought to life by something personal. And, you know, there are times that you need to jumpstart yourself and where the case itself and the cold facts of the case uh, aren't enough to stir you. And so sometimes what I do is I try to fi find um, a particularization or as or an as if um, 
when I'm representing a client to help it to really hit home. Um, you know, and sometimes it's, it's substituting other people from my life, um, you know, into the shoes of the defendant and asking myself a question such as, what if instead of defending Sean um, on charges of aggravated assault, I'm now defending my own brother against the same charges? By substituting someone who I care deeply about from my life, the stakes instantly become higher and the case takes on an entirely new meaning. The first um, effect of that is that I enormously, um, I, I, I become enormously engrossed in the case and it's, and I begin brainstorming and thinking of ways and not letting uh, roadblocks or obstacles come up um, and discourage me. Instead, I feel as if I have to move around them and I start thinking in more creative ways um, and I start and I'm now able to take bad facts and at least neutralize them or turn them into positive facts. You know, so it's a matter of spending some more time with it and giving your mind um, the sense to just run away and not censor any thoughts. Um, that is a state that you want to be in. I call it the state of flow because it doesn't censor anything and it just allows ideas to come into your head and allows you to just um, free, do free associations and write whatever comes to mind. Um, and you begin to see that as hopeless as the case might have otherwise looked, there, it isn't that bad. And in fact, there are bigger and more positive things that have come to light that you can start to mold into a theory of your defense. Um, my next tip is to stay present. Um, I, I have a tendency sometimes of wandering. Um, my mind is usually in a creative place and it's always maybe two or three steps. It, it's like I'm running the trailer to a James Bond movie in my head all the time. I'm always like five steps ahead. And I've really begun to demand um, myself to put my full attention on um, what's going on in real time and to be in the moment. And the reason why that's utterly essential is as it couldn't be more so than in a courtroom when witnesses are being paraded in because you don't know what the witness is going to say. And any inconsistency that is relevant, um, meaning any inconsistency that's uttered by a witness in the course of a direct examination that's um, inconsistent with what they said earlier uh, before a grand jury or in a formal statement, that might be something that's fodder for cross-examination. And um, I'm not talking about small, uh, minor inconsistencies. I'm talking about, you know, um, inconsistencies that are significant and that might cast doubt on the credibility of the witness. And so you need to be, you need to be listening on a heightened level and you can't be you know, three steps ahead of, you know, things by, you know, uh, by, by running ideas through your mind or, you know, um, cogitating about something else. You have to be there. You have to be in the moment. Um, so it's very critical to 
um, demand on yourself your full attention, um, you know, and uh, your and and you know, uh, putting your full attention on the witness. Remember also that the jury is full is always watching. Their tentacles are always out feeling and probing, sending signals to the brain just as when we meet someone for the first time. It happens instantaneously and involuntarily, just like breathing. And so, you know, again, um, you want to be as fully present as you possibly can. You know, and we've mentioned a little bit about uh, comfortability um, around your client. Um, I do want to make mention about um, some things that sometimes are uh, overlooked, especially when you're sitting at counsel table with your client uh, or with John. Uh, what I've come to notice is that, you know, it's almost as subtle as body language, but if you position your chair far apart from Johnny, uh, the jury will sense that you're cautious around him, or worse yet, that you might be afraid of him. Uh, their minds might turn to what's going on underneath the surface. Is John a ticking time bomb? Is he going to snap? Does he have a hair trigger temper? If you're not comfortable around him, you got to ask yourself an honest question. How can you expect the jury to feel comfortable with acquitting him? Uh, the next tip is from uh, Robert Pepin. He was a faculty member at the National Criminal Defense College. And it often turns to, he often turns to his client to ask questions like, there was only you and five officers in that room. Isn't that right, Ricky? And so, you know, it's, it's involving Ricky in, you know, the, the case some more. And it's acknowledging that, you know, he's human and that he's present and that he's there and that he's not being ignored. Like that old saying, um, you know, from the 19th century, children should be seen and not heard. No, he's there. This is what the trial is all about. And so involving him in it, um, you know, and humanizing him by, by acknowledging his presence and, and actually um, looking at him and nodding your head, you know, that makes the jury, um, you know, feel... Uh, feel the same, that he is present and that, you know, uh, his needs are just as strong as theirs. Number seven um, gets into a little bit more um, of practical uh, things. Beware of requesting a curative instruction. Um, before a jury begins deliberations, the judge will give instructions about the evidence of the case. For a fair trial, the court must sometimes limit the jury's consideration of a fact or evidence. This is done through a limiting instruction. Specifically, it tells the, tells the jury to disregard evidence completely or just for a specific fact. Limiting instructions are given when the jury sees or hears evidence that might have a prejudicial impact on their decision, including you know, an explanation as to a co-defendant's absence from trial, evidence of a defendant's other crimes, 404B, admitting evidence against one defendant but not any other co-defendants. Limiting instructions, of course, are necessary because a jury typically doesn't know what is or isn't the proper way to evaluate or use evidence. The burden of requesting such an instruction is, of course, on the party who wants it. 
And, you know, it goes on and on and on. There, you know, these curative instructions are thought to cure any damage caused by, you know, a litany of things. Uh, they allegedly safeguard against the risk of prejudice. Um, for example, if the evidence of a defendant's other crimes is improperly offered, a curative instruction is used to remedy the situation. My opinion is that some errors are so serious that they can't be fixed. For example, a prosecutor's comment on a defendant's failure to testify, an improper and improper vouching for a prosecution witness are far too prejudicial for a curative instruction to fix. In these circumstances, I recommend objecting, requesting a sidebar, and then asking the judge to excuse the witness and the jury, then to argue for a mistrial. Another shortcoming of a curative instruction comes down to common sense. Common sense dictates that a curative instruction accomplishes nothing more than drawing the jury's attention to the 800-pound gorilla in the room. This merely emphasizes and highlights for a second time what otherwise might have been ignored the first time just in case the jury was daydreaming uh, or wasn't paying attention enough to hear it. So be careful. And so um, I like to use this um, syllogism uh, to uh, by Jerry Spence to highlight um, why caring is so essential. As Jerry Spence eloquently puts it, it's like if you don't care, it's like saying to the jury, I want you to do something I can't do myself. And so you instantly begin to see the hypocrisy. Uh, Jerry Spence uses an incredible syllogism to demonstrate this absurdity. It's like a doctor who doesn't care if his patient gets well and who has no other interest than, collect, than to collect his fee. Can that doctor heal? And so Mr. Spence asks a provocative question. How does one care for someone who has committed a heinous act? And he goes on to say, how can you care for someone who is accused of raping a little girl and killing her? How can you care for a serial killer? We've all been ambushed by this question at some point in our careers. Ten years of being a defense attorney has helped me to reflect on this question. Too often the person that is before the jury is the first victim. Of course, a crime has been committed and there is a victim of that crime. But what about the first victim, the defendant, the person for whom you're defending? Was he the victim of a mother who didn't care or a father who abandoned him? Was he raped or abused as a child? A twist of fate could have changed his circumstances dramatically. For, for example, had he been raised by a loving and nurturing family that was determined to see him succeed, would he have dropped out of school? Would he have pledged his allegiance to a gang? Would he have turned to a life of crime? Or would he have gone to college and had become a successful businessman, a doctor, or a lawyer? Are we condemning this person for what he did or because of the cards that he's been dealt with in life? Jerry Spence uses a powerful metaphor. And this is very deep. Um, it's just, when I read it the first time, I was, I was reduced to tears. He said that you can take a little sweet puppy, a Spaniard puppy, and put the pup in a cage with bars and never let it out, and never let the pup, and never love the pup. 
this little pup who loves you and wiggles his tail and wants to be petted and accepted, you can stick it with sticks and refuse to feed it when it's hungry. You can put it with other vicious dogs. And then one day, you can stick your finger into that cage and the pup will bite you. That sweet, gentle, innocent puppy. And so Jerry asked the question, should we kill the pup? After all, he's only entitled to one dog bite and he's bitten twice, so we should kill him. And that highlights this whole idea around the fact that your client might have been the first victim. Um, and so how can we get his or her story out there under the rules of evidence? There are ways. There are ways. And yes, it might not be possible to bring up your client's story. And it might be objected to and on the grounds of relevancy, et cetera, et cetera. However, by doing some of these subtle things that we talked about earlier in the presentation, such as sitting closer to your client, putting your arm around your, and I'm using client right now just for brevity, uh, but putting your arm around Johnny, um, you know, getting closer to Johnny and speaking to him in his ear, looking at Johnny, making eye contact with him, you know, at times during the trial. These are all things that we can do that are small, yes, but that will help us to humanize him. So the keys for caring are to understand who your client is and know his story. Where has he come from? What has he done? What has he endured? What formed this little puppy into the person he is today? Now we're going to move on to breaking down the fourth wall. I absolutely love this topic. So what is the fourth wall? It's an expression evolved, uh, that's evolved from the world of theater. In most modern theater design, a room consists of three physical walls, as well as an imaginary fourth that serves to separate the world of the characters from that of the audience. Speaking directly to, otherwise acknowledging, or doing something to the audience through this imaginary wall is known as breaking down the fourth wall. So what can breaking down the fourth wall teach us about connecting with the jury? As I was sitting in acting class one afternoon, a thought occurred to me. What if we were to view the jury as participants in the trial instead of mere spectators, sitting high up in the, raptor, in the raptors looking on at a distance? In other words, what if we were to draw them into sharing the reconstructed reality of past events so that they could see what happened, even though they were not actually present to witness the original event? The inspiration for this unconventional way of looking at the jury comes from the world of acting. Let me explain. As actors, we must be creative all the time. After all, our job is to make art. Our art is a living thing, and it is bound up with truth and reality and humanity and the theater. The theater is full of hope, full of artistic illusions, full of imagination and people. We can encourage the audience to use their imaginations, and they can become a creative presence there along with us. 
but it is far better when everyone is active and alive in the imaginary world. Why? Because the exchange between the actors and the audience is, is then shared. It's not just a one-sided assault from the stage. By making the jury part of this reconstructed reality, the trial will become alive to them in ways that you may never have dreamed possible. For starters, they will become more engaged and filter the events through that reality. If successful, the jury will feel like they've seen the events in question at the trial, even though those events were reconstructed through testimony not actually present in the courtroom. So, how can we draw the jury into a reconstructed reality of past events? By allowing them to make discoveries. Discoveries are far, far more powerful than any amount of coaxing or, cajol or cajoling. Why? A persuasive argument may make the jurors say, okay, you win, but a discovery that they make on their own makes, give, makes it more concrete because they've made it. And they're likely to say, of course, or better yet, I knew it. Um, and so it empowers the audience. Just think about it. Uh, when, you've, when you watch a movie and the director um, basically um, has clues that are brought out in different scenes and it leads to a suspenseful conclusion that doesn't say to you what the conclusion was, but takes these inferences and adds them up in a way that at the end you can't help but draw the conclusion on your own. You feel like you've solved it yourself and that makes you feel really good. It gives you a sense that, oh my God, I followed the clues. I was able to add, you know, all this up to come up with this and now I know you know why this happened at the end or why this character left feeling this way and the same principle applies in a courtroom so let's let me give you a practical example of how this might work in a trial picture a trial about a traffic accident at an intersection the plaintiff testifies that the defendant ran a red light and hit him in the crosswalk. The cross-examining defense attorney can adopt one of two tactics. First, she can try and get the plaintiff to admit that the light was green and that he should have waited until the light turned red before crossing the intersection. This tactic will quickly turn argumentative with the defense attorney insisting the light was green, right? and the plaintiff flatly denying it with a chorus of, no, it was red. On the other hand, if the cross-examining defense attorney points out that the plaintiff previously brought four similar lawsuits, she is essentially applying the principle of discovery. In that case, the discovery is as clear as day. Yes, of course you claim that the light was red, and that's to be expected because you always say that when you want money. So this principle of discovery packs a one-two punch. It allows the jury to resolve the inconsistent statement while remaining true to the story, effectively turning the plaintiff into an unwitting ally. Now, warning. 
allowing the jury to enter the reconstructed reality and to make discoveries on their own may be a little unsettling at first. And that's for good reasons. Why? Because we lawyers love to be in control. And when we give up control, we feel as if we are slipping and sliding um, perhaps in a mud puddle. The idea of handing over the reins to a jury, for me at least, during the course of a trial, is like riding the tallest and fastest roller coaster at Great Adventure backwards. Now I want to move on to the director's eye. Uh, this is not a topic that um, is that that I've seen mentioned um, in a presentation on opening statement, but I see some practical use for it. Um, and so I want to quote uh, a Shakespeare. Uh, I want to quote from Shakespeare. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. And if that sounds familiar, it's from As You Like It, Act 2, Scene 2. I've mentioned um, at various points in this presentation about how a trial lawyer is endowed a very special gift. Unlike an actor whose job is specifically to act, the trial lawyer gets to wear all three hats, not only that of the storyteller or actor, but that of the writer and that of the director. Why? Because the trial lawyer gets to write and gets to um, write out and brainstorm what questions they are going to ask of witnesses. They get to craft their opening statement by writing it. They get to craft their closing argument. They get to um, write out their questions of uh, their own witnesses. And that is a huge sense of being empowered. And then not only does it stop there, but they also can direct how they deliver their opening, how they deliver their closing argument, how they ask the questions of adversarial witnesses. Um, and so this is why I make the bold statement that a trial lawyer wears all three hats in the trial. Now certainly not everything is controlled by the trial lawyer. Uh, there are things that come up unexpectedly um, during the course of a trial from things such as evidential um, objections that could perhaps lead to an evidentiary motion that wasn't planned for to uh, things that are so mundane but that uh, could deeply impact the course of the trial such as whether the uh, client's clothes um, were wrinkled on the day of trial or um, somehow um, mis, uh, misappropriated by the jail so that he arrives in the uh, courthouse not dressed for trial and that results in an adjournment of hours before the clothes get there or before they're laundered and um, pressed and brought there. So many things are out of our control. But 
for practical reasons, uh, we do have the power and we are the both the right, we are all three, the writer, the director, and the storyteller. And so this gives us a degree of agency and control that's seldom seen in theater or cinema, unless, of course, you're someone who's talented like Kenneth Branagh, who both directs and acts in his own movies. Now, I view each new witness who comes into court like a different scene in a play. Let me back up for a second. What do I mean by this? Well, each scene in a play <clears throat> has a specific purpose. It's not just there um, for kicks or, you know, for, or, or to fill up time. In other words, there's a reason why the writer wrote it. In one short sentence, what does the writer want the audience to learn when the lights come up in the theater? An example might be, don't judge a book by its cover, or love conquers all. And so the relevancy of this for us as lawyers is, what do we want the jury to be left with after that witness gets off the stand? Um, but let me just, to, to highlight the importance of this, let me give you an example from the wizarding world of Harry Potter. So there was a zoo in, in uh, England where the Dursleys took their son Dudley on his 11th birthday and against their will, Harry. If you might remember, uh, the Dursleys were, um, the, uh, were basically uh, Harry's adopted family and they treated Harry like the red-headed stepchild, like Cinderella. Um, and they doted, of course, on Dudley, their son who was spoiled beyond belief, and they treated Harry like he was a second-class citizen. So while at the zoo, the Dursleys brought, uh, bought um, ice cream for the children. And uh, there was a gorilla exhibit. Um, they ate at the zoo restaurant, and then they visited the reptile house. At first, Dudley found the place boring because none of the reptiles were moving around much. But when no one was watching, Harry discovered that he was able to speak to snakes when he realized a boa constrictor understood what he was saying. How ominous. Harry inadvertently caused the glass of the snake's tank to vanish, enabling it to escape. So the objective here in the scene um, was around this idea of Harry being able to communicate with the tongue, with the snake, with the serpent in parcel tongue. Parcel tongue, of course, was the language of serpents and those who can converse with them. It's a very uncommon skill in the world of Harry Potter and is typically hereditary. Harry was not consciously aware of his ability to speak to the snake in parcel tongue until this trip to the zoo when he found himself communicating with a snake while in the reptile exhibit. And so this scene essentially set the stage for how Harry um, had a, an inextricable connection to the Dark Lord uh, through this sense of being able to communicate with serpents and how there was a part of him that was um, in the house, so to speak, of um, the, uh, the evil one. Um, and so it was a very powerful scene that had a very specific objective, and that was why it was written into the script. 
finding the purpose of the scene is just as important for us as actors. Um, and, you know, by understanding why a particular witness has been called to testify, you can then understand what piece of the story he's coming in to tell. A lot of times it's very basic. If, you know, a, wit a victim is coming in to court to testify, you know that they're coming in to tell their story and perhaps to even point the finger at your client as the one who committed the act. A question that actors ask ourselves, um, ask that we can ask ourselves when preparing to question a witness is, what happened the moment before the scene began? Similarly, you might ask the question, what happened the moment before your client, John, stabbed Ed with the knife? It sounds basic, but if Ed hit John over the head with a two-by-four the moment before, then you have a clear picture of what feeling you want the jury to be left with after cross-examining Ed, that he was dangerous. By becoming laser-focused on your objective, you will know what information you need to harness from that witness and what type of questions will enable you to draw it out. You'll come face-to-face -face with the cast of characters. Who are the heroes and who are the villains? Who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? You need the jury to understand the problem from your client's perspective. What other choice did he have other than to defend himself? What does it feel like to be misidentified as a killer? This will make it easier to identify what feelings you want the jury to be left with after hearing from each witness. Now I'd like to talk about the extemporaneous method. This fancy uh, term um, that uh, we're going to uh, simplify. It comes from the creative genius of Stephen Wrench, who's a faculty member at National Criminal Defense College, where I trained. It is a very effective method. It comes from the heart, and it's natural and real. It requires deep preparation, but leaves the um, opening or closing um, to be made at the moment of delivery. What are its characteristics? Well, the focus is the jury, and the source of the message is the attorney, not the notepad. And I will talk a little bit about the notepad. Um, my view on notepads is that it's helpful to have notes or your topics written down so as to jog your memory um, if at any time you lose track of where you're going. Um, it's always great to have um, a roadmap to get you back on course. However, it's merely an aid. The lawyer is not a conduit for what's on the notepad. Um, it, by relying too much on your notes, and I've done this, I've made this mistake very much myself, you basically put an obstacle between yourself and the jury and you remove the personal connection that must exist between you and the jury. And what I mean by that is because you only have two precious moments in the course of a trial to be with a jury and to speak to them. 
and that's during opening and during closing. Unless, of course, you have um, attorney-conducted voir dire, uh, which is something that we're experimenting right now with in the state of New Jersey, and that might at some point become permanent. But the two opportunities we have to seize to be in front of a jury and to interact with them directly is an opening and is in closing. And so I say, don't squander that opportunity by putting a notepad between you and them. You want to be as alive as you can in front of that jury. You want to be speaking thoughts from as spontaneously as you can and by spontaneous, I mean that they have been so well prepared and so well rehearsed that they flow out of you in a way that makes them fresh and new in that moment. Um, so when things are rehearsed and practiced, there's a certain risk that they could come out rote. But I look at it from the perspective that if you are truly reacting and truly experiencing what you're getting from the jury, it will not come out rote. It will not come out monotone. It will be full of life because it's almost as if there's this umbilical cord that runs from you to the jury and there's electricity that's flowing and juice that's flowing in that connection. So a smile or the nod of a head by um, juror number two might cause you to smile and react in a way that's only that's unique to you. Similarly, you're affecting the jury all the time by your mannerisms and by your voice inflection and by your passion for your defense. And so that's inducing members of the jury to react backwards. So even though they're not speaking words back to you, they're reacting by way of their body. And that is constantly creating a response in you. This is not rocket science. It's what we do all the time when we're amongst friends and when, you know, and when we're talking to people in everyday life. The same thing applies in the courtroom. And this is when you, the jury gets to see you and, gets, and your humanity com, can come forward and your ability to persuade is on full display. So we don't want to squander it by putting a notepad between ourselves and the jury. The attorney's immersion with the subject matter allows for flexibility and spontaneity so that he or she can adapt on the fly. The attorney is emotionally available and allows himself to be affected by the jurors. He pauses, allows the jury to respond through facial expressions and body language. It's as though the lawyer is having a conversation with the jury even though the jury is not speaking back. When there is genuine contact between the attorney and the jurors, the relationship between the two lives. The extemporaneous method is natural and conversational and heightens the credibility of the attorney. It requires an effective organizing and note system. Related thoughts should be organized into points. 
Each point and its supporting material should be put into a chapter. The chapter should be given a name, almost like a tagline, which expresses the point or subject matter. This name will help jog your memory. The purpose of the jog note is merely to remind yourself of the point or subject to be covered. The material supporting the point should then come from you as a result of your immersion with the material, without so much as having to take a furtive glance at your notes. Now I'm going to talk about preparation. And I know, like, I, what I hate about preparation sometimes is it feels as though you're being lectured by somebody. And I don't know about you, but I hated to be lectured to by my parents when I was growing up. And so I try to tamp this down a little bit. I'm not lecturing. I'm kind of just telling you what I do for preparation. And what might work for me won't work, might not work for you. What might work for me might be helpful to you in a variation. Um, so these are just some things that I might offer. Neither opening nor closing can be done off the cuff. Each is a performance. And I will say I hate to coin it a performance because that puts an enormous amount of stress and pressure on the attorney. Uh, whenever I'm acting we, and we're putting up a scene in class, we never, never, never preface what we're going to do by saying get ready to do a performance. We call it merely a scene. And once the scene is over and wrapped up, then you might have the remnants of a performance in quotes, in air quotes. But we prefer to go through a lived um, circumstance. You know, no different than if we were going to meet a friend or if we had an event, a wedding or, you know, a dinner event to go to. We don't call that a performance. We go there and we enjoy the moments um, that we live through in that night out with a friend, you know. And for similar reasons, we go through a scene as if we're riding a wave and let it take us wherever it goes. And then after it's over and the director says, cut, we're done. And what we're left with is a, you know, performance or a scene, so to speak. Um, in fact, if I go back, I'll say uh, that we don't even call it a scene before we enter it. You know, it's more a, um, you know, some, a living experience that we're going through. That takes the pressure off incredibly. But nonetheless, we have to be detailed and we have to have careful preparation. When I think of preparation, I draw inspiration from the world of acting. Many theater goers have a sense that somewhere in the actor's psyche lies the potential to forget himself when authentically getting into character. However, few people understand the work that goes into acting and what it means to convincingly portray another person on stage. Fully inhabiting another character um, and the reality of a fictional character is no small feat. So what can we as lawyers do to prepare? Well, step one, begin by brainstorming. And I like 
this process to consist of free associating. Creative thinking or brainstorming produces the ideas for opening statement and closing argument. What I've learned is that whenever I'm stressed and um, you know carrying a lot of weight on my shoulders, um, you know, uh, uh, metaphorically speaking, I don't have ideas coming to my mind as quickly um, as I do when I'm in a relaxed state and um, and you know I'm open to different thoughts. So brainstorming for me is a spiraling process also. It begins before the trial starts and continues throughout the trial to take advantage of new developments. I like to start backwards. I begin with my closing argument. I ask myself the question, what facts must I establish during the course of the trial through oral testimony or through the introduction of physical evidence or exhibits in order to make the kinds of arguments that I need to make at closing to advance my defense and to get an acquittal. So like I said, it requires a lot of free association, and I realize that that can be torturous for those who are perfectionists and prefer structure. You know, it's like being afraid of heights but finding the courage to bungee jump off of the steepest cliff. In other words, you have to let go and give yourself permission to think outside of the box and not to censor anything. There's no such thing as a bad idea. Of course, this does not mean that every thought that comes out of the deepest recesses of your mind is going to be brilliant, much less that it would be a keeper. Like minnows swimming upstream, only a few ideas will actually survive. But the only way to realize these ideas is by allowing your imagination to run wild and not to self-edit. Step two, to type or not to type. Typing up your opening or closing on your um, laptop has shortcomings. And here is why, at least in my opinion. First, if you prepare your opening on your laptop to the utter exclusion of rehearsing it out loud and verbally, then you risk losing the human connection that's essential to establishing trust and transparency with the jury. Studies show that typing up a speech on a laptop and delivering it are two radically different things. And in fact, you didn't, I didn't need a study to tell me that. I've learned through trial and error. Those who prepare exclusively on a laptop are often perceived as being distant, as if they are in an isolation chamber when they get up to deliver the opening or closing. You don't want to squander, of course, the most precious moments of the trial when you get to address the jury directly. Second, the spoken word is radically different than the written word. As Mark Twain once said, it's like the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. So how do I prepare? Um, and I do have to back up a little bit um, to borrow an analogy from Jerry Spence. He says that the written word is like a stuffed bear. Uh, the spoken word, in comparison, is like a real bear standing on its hind legs and drooling from the mouth. It's alive. So the punctuation that's present in the text of a play um, by comparison, is intended for the reader and not for the actor. Words like, he softly moved about, he angrily um, moved the table, or with effort, dictate a kind of life which, which can only be there spontaneously. So we never memorize 
uh, with punctuation. Uh, we, 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 we cross it out, as a matter of fact. We don't want the jury to hear all the periods, commas, and semicolons um, that, we've re that we've memorized. It just sounds unnatural. And so, you know, I rewrite my scripts from beginning to end in my own hand, crossing out all stage directions and punctuation. Each line looks like a big run-on sentence, but there is a method behind this madness. What is going to provoke me is not what stage notes or stage directions exist in the script or what punctuation the writer has included. It's what's coming out of me truthfully in the moment when I'm speaking. And for similar reasons, um, this is why when I am writing you know, uh, my opening statements, I prefer not to include any punctuation. Um, it occurs a lot as run-ons, or what I'd prefer to um, uh, say are more like what I prefer to say is more like uh, bullet bullet numbers um, that guide me in my opening as to what topics and what points I want to talk about. I have slowly gravitated away from writing word for word or typing word for word an opening because what happens inevitably is for someone like myself who's a perfectionist, I start to memorize exactly what I've said and that doesn't give me, that doesn't give my um, speech or my delivery the opportunity to live in the moment. Instead, it gets me into a very rigid structure of delivering it mechanically the way I typed it up. And instead, I want it to be engaging. I want to be fully engaged with the jury as if I would be engaged with friends at a party or, you know, some type of event. And so when it lives in the moment, it will never come out the way it was rehearsed. Instead, I will, I will express myself in different ways. I, other things will come to me in the moment that, you know, are even more um, enlightening and might even have a deeper impact um, on the listener than how I wrote it out. And so, you know, I'm not discouraging anybody who would otherwise like to, you know, type up, you know, their opening and closing from doing so. However, I would, I would say trust yourself some more and give, your, give yourself, you know, the opportunity to um, improvise as you go along. And improvisation comes from being so well prepared that you know what you want to talk about that new things come in the moment and those things can sometimes be inspired by what type of reactions you've gotten from the jury. Um, and, and you know you might want to try out an approach where you use bullet points. Number, step three, don't rush. Uh, I was always taught as an actor that rushing is the enemy of the moment. Things take the time they take and give yourself the moment that you need. You know, don't force yourself to rush. 
don't get nervous, you know, if a thought isn't coming to your mind as quickly as you would like it to. You know, sometimes the moments that, you know, of silence where you're thinking on your feet are as precious as those moments that you're speaking, if not more. Because keep in mind, the jury's been so immersed with so many things that by taking some time to think about what you're going to say next, it actually gives them some time to let what they've just heard sink in and to reflect on what you've just said. So yes, it could actually emphasize or highlight what you've just said by being silent for a little bit. And the other thing is the rapid, unbroken chain of speaking, you know, is sometimes overwhelming, especially when it's so chock full of information and when there's so much going on for and so many things that the jury has to make sense with, that if you take some time to stop, you'll give the jury the opportunity to catch up with you. And like I said, for these ideas to sink in. Um, step four, rehearse. And when I talk about rehearsal, I don't just talk about on your own. I like the idea of using non-lawyers in uh, as your audience. I would take anybody in my office that would be willing to give me 10-15 minutes of their time and my preference would be non-lawyers in the office. Um, members of the staff um, that naturally are you know well versed with the profession because they you know are uh, are the are boots on the ground and they're on the front lines when it comes to you know things going on and so you know, they're not um, removed from uh, what our clients are going through, but at the same time, they, are, they represent a more, uh, they represent a better sounding board um, for running your opening statement and closing argument by than perhaps lawyers, other lawyers might be. Other lawyers, of course, will help you sharpen and refine certain things, but I don't think that there's any better way than to have non-lawyers weigh in on some of the things that you say um, because they are tuned in to a lot of the same things that a jury of lay people will be tuned into that are easy to overlook, such as, you know, are you maybe being a little bit too high and mighty at times. Uh, might you need to um, bring it down a little bit, perhaps? Um, are there certain things that you're doing that are really well that you didn't even know you were doing? Um, does one person think that uh, when you when that you got really passionate about about something and did you not know about that? And is that something that you can now weave in you know, when you actually do your real opening or closing. So I love rehearsing. And, you know, this is optimal. I'm talking about, you know, having non-lawyers, non you know, um, and having a 
you know, a sounding board, but not everybody has an opportunity. So, you know, you have to just kind of take what you, you know, what, what, what you can. And sometimes, you know, you only get the opportunity to be on your own, but nonetheless, you should always attempt to speak out loud what you intend to speak in a courtroom. All right, and I, I get that there's this idea that how will my opening sound spontaneous if I've rehearsed it countless times? Well, actors have the same problem. As the actor, you know, they have this, you know, as an actor, you know, they realize the same conundrum. How can, how, if I'm rehearsing it, is it going to sound uh, like it's being, like it's happening for the first time? Because as the actor, you of course know what's coming next because you've memorized the script after all and you've rehearsed the scene hundreds if not thousands of times. But as the character living in that moment, you can't have the foggiest idea of what's going to happen next. So how does the actor behave? Well, he behaves as if it's happening for the first time. Uh, you may think that the same play with the same cast is performed the same way every night of the week, but it's really not. Even though the script is the same and um, the words, you know, if they were typed out, might appear to be the same, an actor might blush in a scene on Tuesday night, causing his scene partner to respond more playfully and with more glee than he did the night before. This subtle behavior can change the entire course of the scene, even though the lines haven't changed and are always the same. So don't memorize your opening or closing in a preset fashion. Why? Because Murphy's Law says that lines will be delivered in the live performance the same way they're rehearsed. Nothing is worse than the actor who memorizes his lines in a preset way. This prevents the actor from being open to any influence that comes to him from his scene partner and avoids uh, calculated results, which is critical to being spontaneous. Um, you know, and so I, um, you know, I, I do want to give a quick example here. Um, there are times that we've all been to a play where the speaking actor um, was so oblivious to what was going on around him that his scene partner could have had an epileptic seizure without so much as causing him any interruption. And so such actors might just as well be in a cocoon or in an isolation chamber because they're destined to, to deliver their lines the same way, night in and night out. But nothing could be more boring. And not working off of a scene partner is a common pitfall that even most experienced actors fall into. So a provocative question is, when the jury is in the courtroom, can you tell a difference between the way you are delivering your opening versus when you are rehearsing it alone. And so here's a funny example. Let's suppose you are rehearsing um, a line out of a play and the line is, I hate you. You memorize this line by putting special emphasis on the word hate and hitting it hard so that the word is full of scorn. In the moments before your line, your scene partner's behavior turns flirtatious with hints of seduction. She is as transparent as glass. 
When it's your turn to speak, you assault your scene partner with a line the way you rehearsed it, irrespective of your scene partner's flirtatious behavior. The audience will instantly observe the contradiction. Your tone and voice inflection was inconsistent to your scene partner's behavior. In other words, your emotion did not come out of what you were getting from your scene partner. And so an important, an important lesson is always to listen to what your partner means, not just to what they say. And I think the same thing applies in a courtroom. Um, a word or a thought can come out so differently than how you might have rehearsed it if you're open to the influence of other people. And I feel that if you rehearse in a way where you are emphasizing, where you're emphasizing a certain way um, as in the, in the rehearsal process, you won't be as open to the shifts that occur in real time. But if you are open and if you rehearse in a way that you don't tie yourself to a certain reading of a line, you are going to be more spontaneous and more open to the influences that you get from the jury in those moments. And there is a certain degree of letting go, um, which isn't easy, but that is vital for a uh, opening that is, is alive. Um, and so I sometimes endorse, you know, memorizing in a neutral way, uh, just like you might have memorized your ABCs when you were in, in grade school. Um, in other words, without any meaning. And that way, it's going to be more open to the shifts that occur, you know, in the moment when you're in front of a jury. And so I like to endorse this idea of neutral and relaxed, not firm and tense. You know, and it takes you away from any preconceived way of, you know, delivering a line. I also endorse this idea of um, having your opening and closing memorized well, that you could recite them out of a sound sleep. Um, it, it's going to help your mind to um, stay focused on what your points are and at the same time it's going to encourage your creativity because there's going to be a confidence underlying your delivery. You're going to know what is coming next and it's going to give you within these, within what might be a firm structure, creativity to um, launch into something that might not have, you know, uh, been on your radar when you were uh, rehearsing it within the structure, within the structure. Simplicity. Um, this is step five. I think one of the problems um, is that we make preparation out to be something that it isn't. It's not supposed to be too big. I mean, of course, in acting, you know, uh, when we talk about emotional preparation, you know, the immediate immediately the actor thinks that they have to have 10,000 pounds worth of good spirits before the scene can go off. But not everything is an atomic bomb waiting to go off. I often find that um, my preparation um, guides me to a very calm 
and uh, peaceful state before I get up before a jury. Um, naturally, there's always going to be the butterflies, there's always going to be the heart racing, but I find that being in a state of balance, for me at least, is a great way to start with opening or closing. Um, you know, it just centers me and I feel ready to go. I feel like I've, you know, I've just been, you know, I've just stopped at the filling station and I have a full tank of gas and now I'm ready. And I realized that, uh, you know, rehearsing is sometimes gets a bad rap because, you know, it makes you aware of yourself. Um, but the moment you stand up in front of the jury and focus your attention on them, your self-consciousness will erode. Inspiration for rehearsing for me um, comes from, you know, the reality that when I'm rehearsing, no one is, you know, when I'm rehearsing, I get to let um, any flops happen without the risk that, you know, if I were to make that same flop in front of a uh, real jury, that it could have serious consequences on my client. The other issue is that the more you put yourself in uncomfortable situations, um, yet in safe environments, such as your own home doing this, the more resilient you will be to deal with the unexpected things that come up during the course of trial. I've never, never um, found rehearsing to be detrimental. If anything, it has helped me immensely uh, when I've been in trial and unexpected things have happened that could have otherwise thrown me off, such as an objection, that led to a sidebar, that led to the jury being excused, that led to a lengthy evidential argument that I was never prepared for, and then for the jury returning to the courtroom after the ruling was made for a continuation of where things left off. I felt myself so fully prepared only because of the preparation that I did. Empowering the jury. And th this is where we're going to come to an end. I've sometimes, I believe fully in empowering the jury, and I think that it can be done in many different ways, but at its core, what we're trying to do here is let the jury know their power. Let the jury know that they're the most important people in the courtroom because they are the ones that get to decide the facts of the case and they get to decide whether the person who you care so deeply about is guilty of the offense or not guilty. So no matter how big of an ego the trial judge had and how much power he wielded over the, over the jury during the course of the trial, the jury is ultimately the ones who make the decision. And I fear that that sometimes can be lost in the course of a trial um, based on the fact that great deference is given to the judge, as it should be, 
because they are the ones that are, um, you know, that are seen by the jury as the most important person in the courtroom based on, you know, the, uh, uh, based on norms and, um, you know, ideas and preconceived notions that people have and that are reaffirmed, you know, by the, uh, by what's seen by the jury in the courtroom. Um, so, you know, I like to empower the jury. Um, you might do so uh, by something like this. If Michael is guilty of anything, he's guilty of using poor judgment and of caring so much for Beth, but that doesn't make him guilty of any one of the crimes. It only makes him a criminal if he violates the law. Michael is the one who stands in judgment before you. Michael's fate, the fate of another human being, lies in your hands. You may not have thought the way Michael thought, believed what he believed, or did what he did, but that doesn't make him guilty. We're all, using, we're all guilty of using poor judgment. Michael sits before you, an innocent man whose false statement has convinced everyone that he has committed these crimes. Someone has to say no to this. Guess who that is? I can't do it. The only thing I can do is ask you to do it. Only you have that power. And so that's a sample of one way. Obviously, you know, you have to have facts that might be consistent with um, that line. But it gives you some ideas of some things that you can play with. And don't forget to tell the jury what you want them to do, both in opening and in closing. Opening statement should end with a final appeal that tells the jury what you want or asks for vindication of the defendant's actions. Closing, you might say something or, you know, uh, you, you might um, speak to when the foreman comes in and hands your verdict to the clerk, I want that verdict to be so that Michael can step right up and walk out of here with his son or with his family that he loves so much. All right, there's no rule against saying what you want. Uh, this is someone that you care so deeply about. All we're doing is we're expressing ourselves in a way that might be a little bit more personal and more intimate than what we're used to expressing in a courtroom. Um, but there's no objection that can, uh, that in my mind could be sustained by telling the jury what you'd like to see them do. And so this is where I'm going to end the presentation. If you have any questions, I am always, my door is always open and I'm willing to, uh, to chat. It's been a pleasure to present this and I wish you the very best.